Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, the 21st annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities is being held in the historic town of Eatonville. It is not a festival in New York City or in Hollywood. It's not a festival in Chicago or any of the big metropoli of the world. It's in Eatonville, Florida. What might be the oldest art in the Western Hemisphere is discovered in Vero Beach. Within a couple hundred yards from where I found this piece, they pulled an entire mammoth skeleton out. It's a rich area. And we'll discuss how many Florida towns had trolleys and streetcars in the first decades of the 20th century. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. When I get in the Illinois, I'm going to spread the news about the Florida boys. Shove it over. Hey, 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 can't you line it? Oh, shaka, laka, 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 laka. <clears throat> can't you move it? Hey, 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 can't you try? Eat him up, whiskers, or he won't shave. Eat him up, body lights, he won't bathe. Shove it over. Hey, hey, oh, can't you line that? Oh, shaka, laka, 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 laka. <clears throat> can't you move it? Hey, 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 oh, can't you try? That's a 1939 WPA recording of writer, folklorist, and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston documenting a work song she collected in Florida in 1933. Best known for her 1937 novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, Hurston grew up in Eatonville, which is the oldest incorporated African-American municipality in the United States, established in 1887. For the past 20 years, the town of Eatonville has celebrated the legacy of its most famous resident with the annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities held during the last week of January. N.Y. Nathiri is executive director of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community and founder of the Hurston Festival. She says that when the event began in 1988, few people outside of Eatonville were aware that it was the first town exclusively governed by African Americans, and the writings of Zora Neale Hurston had a limited audience as well. We were very uh, specific about the role that this festival was to play. Initially it was to present historic Eatonville in a way that most people in Central Florida did not view Eatonville. I dare say that historic and Eatonville would not go in most people's minds, not, not, not go together. Additionally, most people did not understand that Eatonville is a literary destination because I think that many people were not aware of the impact of Zora Neale Hurston. Now I know that there are some doubters who think, perhaps they don't think it now, but when we first started, you know there's marketing and there's hype and there is hype. Uh, and so all of this 
talk about Zora Neale Hurston and I mean really who was reading her anyway and if she that that whole business of well if she was so great why didn't I know about her how is it that I could have gone through undergraduate school and not been introduced to her in my Norton anthology I mean I have a master's I have a PhD in American literature and I didn't hear of Zora Neale Hurston to that I would say that Robert Hemingway her literary biographer who spent about a decade researching her life because he couldn't believe that he was a tenured professor and had not had an opportunity to study this woman's work. So I would say to those academics, for example, who might say, well, why did I know it? Don't feel bad. It's okay. <laughs> you weren't by yourself. The, the fact is, however, that Hurston's work is the only advocate that she needs. What we had to do with Festival was to utilize that work to say what Eatonville represents in that spectrum of literary destination discussion, and hence what Eatonville could become. When many people hear discussions of historic preservation, they think of buildings in disrepair or dusty boxes of documents and records. As Mrs. Nathiri explains, that is really a misperception because historic preservation can be an important economic development tool. My, um, I guess you'd say my bias from a preservationist point of view is that when we, when we gather, when the weirdo preservationists gather together, economic development and preservation always go hand in hand. It's only out in the larger community that preservationists are seen as the dodo birds, you know, and that, that then means that the preservationists need to get themselves organized and get the message out that preservation is economic development. I can't tell you over the last four or five years how many national conferences have addressed this in one facet or the other. Clearly, for us, heritage preservation, cultural tourism, literary destination, all of those phrases are part and parcel of what we see as our heritage resources. Over the past two decades, the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities has gained an international reputation as one of the finest events of its kind. The event has a scholarly component with academic discussions, varied performing and visual art presentations, and a street festival with storytelling, arts and crafts, and food. The Maitland Art Center, the Crealde School of Art, the Enzion Theater, and the Orlando Museum of Art are just some of the institutions that have partnered with the Hurston Festival. And why theory? The Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community as a parent organization has enjoyed a number of collaborative relationships. Uh, with sister institutions, arts institutions in in uh, the greater Orlando, Orange County, Central Florida region. And it is gratifying to, to have the confidence of some of our colleagues to invest time uh, two, three years out, because typically when you're working with museums, you're talking three, five, sometimes ten years out. Rollins College in Winter Park is one of the chief collaborators of the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. 
Over the past two decades, Rollins College, which was established in 1885, has helped the Hurston Festival to present art exhibitions, musical performances, and theatrical productions. The Rollins College community was also very supportive of Zora Neale Hurston herself. Well, you, you must remember that Zora Neale Hurston was writing in the 30s, and at that time, especially in the context of the South, there weren't voices coming out of the South. The Harlem Renaissance, remember, is New York City, okay? And that's, that's a different context. Um, a professor at, um, at Rollins helped uh, Zora Neale Hurston to get her first short story, I believe, published, her first novel published. And from that time, there was a, there was a relationship that that transcended the social mores of the segregated South um, in, in that certain persons on that campus stepped away from and stepped um, over the barriers of the segregated South as they, as they recognized the, um, the, the worth of Zora Neale Hurston's work and the need to assist her as they could. You'll remember back in 1993, we uncovered, discovered, so to speak, um, the, um, the program From Sun to Sun, which, which was not staged at the Annie Russell, because that would have really, I, I think that what that would have required was a, a bit more gumption than even, even Rollins had, uh, you know, not, not to stage that kind of a, of a program. Uh, at at the main facility, but it was staged in the re recreation house to a white audience. I mean, uh, uh, black people were not allowed to come on. But as you look in terms of increment, and also as you look at what was happening at that time, uh, clearly this was uh, revolutionary. So uh, Rollins has uh, has enjoyed, and I might say not just for Zora Neale Hurston. I believe that there's a stone there for Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune. That Rollins tradition. Uh, represents, let's say, the finest of what happens when, when an educational institution, when an intellectual center, dedicates itself to representing what is, what is the best, regardless of what skin color it comes from or what ethnic background. In January 1994, Rollins College placed a stone on its Walk of Fame in recognition of renowned poet, performing artist, and educator Maya Angelou. A supporter of the Hurston Festival for the past two decades, Maya Angelou says that Zora Neale Hurston has been a major influence on her writing. Miss Hurston's work encouraged me and informed me and did all the things that great literature is, you know, must do for, uh, for the species. Um, I would, I, I, I find it impossible to say where you know, that her dialogue or her prose or her immediacy, because she uses a language which is absolutely immediate. Uh, whether, what, what of those facets of her, her work has impressed and influenced me? I read everything. So, and I don't take a book and say, ah, okay, from this I'm going to get alliteration, or, you see, or, in this particular instance, I'm going to look for imagery. I don't do that. I simply read. Just take it, put it in the brain. Mm -hmm. And so, Miss, I couldn't say exactly how, but I know that she is a major influence in my life. 
Zora Neale Hurston's writings, such as the novel Their Eyes Were Watching God and her creatively embellished autobiography Dust Tracks on a Road, bring early 20th century Florida to life in colorful detail. Maya Angelou remembers when she first encountered Hurston's work. Yes, I would have said I read her first in the 40s when I was reading. I had one period in my life for almost six years, I was a mute, and um, I read everything. So I could, uh, I, would, I would have read um, first, her first in the 40s, and then again in the 50s. Elizabeth Alexander was the inaugural poet for President Barack Obama, but Maya Angelou was the inaugural poet for the man that writer Toni Morrison called the first black president. Maya Angelou recalls writing the inauguration poem for Bill Clinton. Very exciting. It's very challenging. Uh, it's almost impossible to write a public poem. I mean, the two, the two words are mutually exclusive, you understand. <laughs> but, um, to, and, and people began to feel they owned the poem long before I wrote it. So on planes and in supermarkets and down the street, people would say, Hi, how are you doing? How's the poem coming? Oh, Lord. <laughs> Um, the the idea, the ambition to speak for my country, for my fellow Americans, is a vast ambition. Um, I I had to continue to put myself at ease by remembering that Miss Emily Dickinson traveled 67 miles from her home, and she spoke for human beings. Her poetry is for human beings. Um, I had to continue to remember that there were people, whether they were as ambulatory or, or uh, as uh, much given to travel as um, Walt Whitman or as centered as Paul Lawrence Dunbar, that people dared to speak for all people, you see. And that's the only way I could approach it with any grace and hope for success. Mr. President and Mrs. Clinton, Mr. Vice President and Mrs. Gore, and Americans everywhere. A rock, a river, a tree, hosts to species long since departed, marked the mastodon, the dinosaur, who left dry tokens of their sojourn here. Any broad alarm of their hastening doom is lost in the gloom of dust and ages. But today, the rock cries out to us clearly, forcefully, come, you may stand upon my back and face your distant destiny, but seek no haven in my shadow. I will give you no hiding place down here. You, created only a little lower than the angels, have crouched too long in the bruising darkness. The purpose of the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities is to preserve and promote African-American history and culture. Maya Angelou says that celebrating history is essential for all people today. All people, all people need to know uh, their heritage. A person who doesn't know where he's been has very little chance of charting where he or she is going. He must know. And I do believe that people live in direct relation to the heroes and sheroes they have. 
always and in always. And all those people who went before and paid for you, Mr. Broke Michael, and for me, need to be cherished. One needs to, just the grace of saying thank you uh, increases and enriches our present lives and prepares us to enrich the lives of those who are yet to come. It is very clear. Um, this festival is, um, has a singular importance. Um, it is not a festival in New York City or in Hollywood. It's not a festival in Chicago or any of the big metropoli of the world. It's in Eatonville, Florida. And so it is singular in that the festival, its existence itself, educates without a person having to even come here. He or she is forced to recognize this was the first incorporated all-black town in the United States. That's fantastic to know. Many black people don't know that there were any, and not to mention whites or Spanish-speaking or Native American, you see? So it's a, it has a singular importance. Now then, of course, the larger importance or, or maybe the more glamorous and attractive importance that it brings together these people who have achieved and we get a chance to say to the young people steady on come on you know and do it and we believe in you and all the good things it really uh, is remarkable in itself and of itself and so the um, the conveners have had great dreams this is a very ambitious project the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities is held annually during the last week of January in historic Eatonville, Florida. Yeah, I'm a woman walking across the field, a mouth exhausting like an automobile. Shove it over, hey, hey, you can't you line it. Ah, shaka like 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 can't you move it? Hey, hey, can't you try? This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books about Florida history and culture, look at historic photographs, find out about upcoming special events, and become a member of the Florida Historical Society. Finding a prehistoric fossil is awesome enough, but as Janie Gould reports, a man in Vero Beach has discovered some ancient art along with a fossil. The discovery in Vero Beach of a fossil with a carving of a mammoth on it has drawn attention from the global scientific community. National Geographic Online, for one, says it might be the oldest artwork in the Western Hemisphere. The finder, James Kennedy, 39, started collecting fossils when he was a teenager and was fishing one day in the Maine Relief Canal. The boat kept drifting away from the spot that I wanted to be in to fish, so I found a big rock, tied it on a piece of rope, and made me an anchor. It didn't look like any other rock that I had seen, so I called a family friend, Dr. Berthold Suarez, looked at it, and he said, you know, this isn't a rock, this is a mammoth tooth. Over the years, he collected thousands of old bones and artifacts. He may have hit pay dirt a few years ago, but didn't realize it until recently. When I go collect up bones and pieces, lots of them are just bone shards and chips. You have no idea what they are, really. You can go to some of the books or some of the scientists and let them look at them. With this piece, it was sitting in a box, and I put it under the sink and left it there for about two and a half years. 
he had unearthed the bone on land owned by a friend on the north side of Vero Beach. His property has been very, very full of fossils and all kinds of things. Within a couple hundred yards from where I found this piece, they pulled an entire mammoth skeleton out. It's a rich area. Now, you pulled out this object, you looked at it, obviously, and then you put it away under the sink. What caused you to take it out and think it might be something? Well, just like everybody else, the recession makes times hard and people have an interest in things like this, so I figured I would get out some of the pieces and parts and clean them off and go down to the flea market and leave it with an old buddy of mine down there and see if anybody was interested in buying little parts or pieces. I came across it while I was looking for some other stuff one day and looked through it and cleaned it off and there he was. It's a piece of mammoth bone and it has a mammoth carved into it. It shows that people and these creatures coexisted? My idea is probably someone sitting around with a full belly of mammoth. They uh, seen it, thought about it, and just scratched it into the bone while they were sitting around the fire. Michael Warren is a forensic anthropologist at the University of Florida. He examines cuts on bones of contemporary homicide victims. When he was asked to study the Vero find, he first thought it might be a fake, but the markings led him to a different conclusion. It appears to me that the erosion of the cut marks suggests that they're not of recent origin. It's beyond my area of expertise, but it certainly seems authentic to me. I've had people question, oh, well, maybe somebody found a mammoth carcass or a skeleton or something afterwards, and they just scratched it in there. They would have found something that doesn't even resemble what a mammoth is other than a tusk. If you look at a picture of the uh, skeleton of one, there's no way you're going to get the idea of its body shape. When you're out there digging, do you visualize what Florida's terrain and landscape must have been like? That's the absolute lust and high of it for me. You have something in your hand that someone held that long ago. We build monsters machines out of steel and concrete, but here's a piece of an animal's bone and someone's artwork that has lasted that long. It kind of lets you know that we as humans are a little bit more capable than what we're told we are. The bone has been studied by eminent scientists. Where is it now? What are you going to do with it? Right now it's under about 50 tons of steel and concrete because that's what everybody told me I had to do. A bank vault. Something to that effect. I want it to be in a museum where others can see it. Do you think that there's an inordinate amount of fossil material in Vero Beach? Yes, there is an unbelievable amount. There's a lot of things that went on here in Florida. Most people have the idea that it uh, wasn't that old, but science is starting to prove that we've been here a lot longer than what they think. So the earliest Floridians lived here at least 12,000 years ago, which means that all the rest of us are newcomers. That would be putting it mildly. James Kennedy lives in Vero Beach. Janie Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Clang, clang, clang went the trolley. Ding, ding, ding went the bell. Zing, zing, zing went my heartstrings. For the moment I saw him, I fell. Today it's difficult to imagine a time when only one in ten Americans owned an automobile. That was the case in the early 1920s, though, when people depended on public transportation, particularly in cities. Bill Dudley has this nostalgic look at the most popular means of public mass transit in Florida's past. Riding a trolley had to be wonderful. You opened the windows, you heard the gong, 
there was a whole different feeling to riding on rails. Seth Bramson of Miami is a railroad historian who's working on a book about Florida's early mass transit systems, including what is today called light rail, the trolleys and streetcars of a bygone era. What most people do not realize is that there were many locations in Florida that had some form of street or electric railway. As early as the 1880s, horse-drawn rail cars carried passengers through the streets of cities around Florida. And we had horse cars in Key West and Miami, Pensacola, Tallahassee and Gainesville, Orlando, and Winter Park. Now, interestingly enough, uh, Gainesville, Tallahassee, Orlando, and Winter Park never went on to electrically operated streetcars. But other Florida cities next tried streetcars powered by batteries. Battery cars operated in places as diverse as Sanford and Daytona and Miami and South Jacksonville. And these battery cars operated for a very short time, unfortunately, because they had not reached a point of technology where they could keep these vehicles running for any extended period of time and they would simply conk out right in the middle of a run. By 1910, most streetcars in the state were true trolley cars. The trolley refers to the arm atop the car that drew electricity from an overhead wire. Eventually, you would see fairly extensive systems in Pensacola, Jacksonville, Miami, Miami Beach, Carl Gables, Tampa, St. Petersburg, and Bradenton, incredibly enough, Key West had a streetcar system with two lines. The state's largest city before 1920, Jacksonville, had one of the most extensive sets of tracks. Meanwhile, in Tampa, journalist Leland Haas remembers riding the streetcar to school each day. Well, it was a lot of fun, usually. They'd clatter along the Bay Shore. The streetcars could get kind of hectic, particularly with a bunch of kids aboard. There were times when it seemed like they were rocketing along, but it was probably... 25 miles an hour at most. Hawes says trolleys were a major means of getting around in pre-World War II Tampa. Some of the early lines were constructed to get cigar workers from one end of town to the other. All the lines interwove through the downtown area, so this was a means a lot of people got to and from work. And the streetcars operated well into the 1940s in both Tampa and St. Petersburg. A nickel fare stayed until the very end of Tampa Electric Company's streetcars when they were finally done away with August 31, 1946. The president of Tampa Electric had said that over the years, why, even though the streetcars were losing money, why he felt that this was a public service they could provide. The school kids' fare was two and a half cents for tokens that they could buy And there were a lot of kids using streetcars. What became of Florida's trolley cars? Was their demise hastened by a conspiracy on the part of automobile and tire manufacturers to encourage the use of cars and buses, as many light rail enthusiasts believe? Did it simply become impractical to run on tracks through increasingly congested city streets? Whatever the reasons, by the 1940s the damage was done. For better or for worse, Americans were firmly sold on the idea of a private automobile for everyone. Historian Seth Bramson. The carrying of people by electrically operated vehicles, trolley cars, was something that formed the mainstay of intra-city transportation for the masses in the early years of this century in Florida as well as the rest of the country. So little has ever been written and so little has ever been brought to the public attention that when most people find out that indeed there were many cities 
with street and electric railways here in Florida. They're completely shocked because they never knew that, by God, running right down Hogan Street or Main Street or Bay Street in Jacksonville, there was a trolley car. And so this, this comes as a revelation to many people. Today, more than 35 American cities are once again running some form of light rail transportation. Tampa and Orlando are working on trolley cars to haul tourists, and other systems are projected around the state. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week, and until then, stop by our website at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.